Welcome to episode 49 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my problematic co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Winston. Hey, Chris. I'm doing really good. I had a good week here, and next week is going to be busy for me. How about you, Chris? Uh, super excited for what's going on this week. I'm sure we'll get into that very shortly, but yeah, everything's been going really great. Glad to hear everything's uh, looking up. So uh, who's got the, the more exciting thing to share? Well, it's got to be Chris. <laughs> New machine day trumps everything. Okay, yeah, I, I can start. Um, yeah, so the UMC arrived last Tuesday. Uh, they basically uneventfully just came and dropped it off. Uh, it was kind of sad. Like I, I got to the shop and I was there and you know it's basically just has a bunch of boxes inside it's it's super uneventful i was a little disappointed um i kind of wish that there was a way to deliver and have the tech guy out there at the same time because we had power and air ready to go already so the we scheduled the tech to be here this wednesday and then the Haas training guy will be there on friday so we should be up and running by friday evening when he leaves did you did you guys uh get like power hooked up to it, air, all that good stuff. Yeah, we did. We did that within thirty minutes of them delivering the machine. Like we were ready to go. Yeah. Uh, did you guys have to make a space for the machine? Like, did you have something already picked out? And did you pre-run air to that, or was there like an existing uh, VMC in that spot? No, actually, it's right next to the existing VMC. We have like a nineteen ninety-nine Aero Cincinnati. Um, so we're it's actually parked right next to it. That area already previously had a bunch of uh, lines for power and air. Um, just kind of when we when they moved into the shop, they just had it plumbed every six feet for whatever future. So we have a lot of excess because they have a lot of like um, bridge ports and um, they have an email, you know, they have a bunch of lathes and stuff all over the place. So we basically just had to clean it out a little bit, uh, but there was already a space for it. And I told them most important, and it's perfect because on the, the concrete slab is kind of separated from the rest. There's a, there's a little space for the UMC to sit on. That's kind of different. So um, yeah, it worked out, worked out good. Are all those machines still there or is that the previous tenant? No, they're still there. They're, they're ours. Um, they're just kind of like, uh, we, we just positioned them better. It's not so spaced out. We kind of like tighten up the you know how we use the space we tilted the lathes and stuff like that we just kind of made it uh, more space efficient because before we didn't really have enough stuff to fill the space so we cleaned up and we basically moved a lot of the the grinding and stuff the dirty stuff outside um we we purchased three containers and we basically like cut them up and we moved a plasma cutter inside and we moved a lot of the other things like the bandsaw just things that are kind of not machine related we move them into the containers and also outside of the building and then the only things that are inside still are the cnc machines the manual mills and lathes and also the mandrel bender for the pipe so like those are all kind of that's basically what's left of the the back of the shop and then uh we move the welder a little bit forward and stuff so there's plenty of room like i can i'm gonna you know set up a desk and everything cabinets and carts and stuff for all the tooling and things that we're going to use um and there's still a lot of room uh, if we need to Hopefully, my, my, my goal for this is to make sure that this is successful for, you know, myself and my buddy. And we're already, we're planning to buy a second machine. So as long as we can make this work, I think we'll have a second one soon. Yeah, just in case this is anybody's first time listening to the podcast, uh, Chris just took delivery of a Haas UMC 500 five-axis machine. And uh, so how does the Cincinnati look compared to, uh, does it look small now with the UMC? Actually, the, Cin- the Cincinnati is bigger it's it's not taller but it's bigger it, it's it's old but it's a very rigid machine like that thing is very very strong uh, from what i've heard from other machinists uh that kind of was they used to sell those like like bread back in the day and they're kind of all over the place um they're really well-built machines some of the aerospace places that i visited they have much bigger versions of that that they don't make anymore and when i say bigger i mean like um a quarter of football field size. Like they're huge. Like they span across over a hundred, you know, feet or whatever like that. Um, and the company made a lot of great machines and it's, it's actually really good. It's just it really old, not enough memory. It's kind of a hassle to, you can't do any type of surfacing or 3d adaptive paths or anything. Everything's gotta be like simple pockets and contours. 
Um, we use an RS-232 cable to, to, you know, bring files in and it's just kind of that kind of headache. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, a, it's kind of frustrating in that sense, but no, it's a solid machine. We're actually going to sell it. It's got a upgraded 10,000 K spindle and, um, we're going to get rid of it. And when we do, we'll basically make room for the, uh, because we want another machine, but we, we don't need another five axis. We just want a three axis for the table space. Okay. Remind me, what'd you guys uh, end up with? Uh, for the UMC spindle, did you guys end up going up to 12 or six, 16? What was we got it? the 15K. 15K, okay. Yeah, that's the highest you could get. Yeah, I think you're going to be happy that you made that, that, that selection. Yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, um, we only got the 31 tools because uh, it, was, it was like 18 grand for 50. And I don't think we need, I don't think we need that many because I'm going to standardize everything. So we shouldn't need that many spots. You guys are doing production, not job job stuff on that mostly, right? We're doing both actually. We're gonna oh, have okay. production and prototyping. Okay. So we're gonna save, I think I'm gonna standardize like 15 to 20 tools, and then I'm gonna leave the last 10 to 15 basically specialized tooling or whatever for the prototyping stuff we're gonna do. How's your uh, work holding quest going? It's good. Uh, so I basically just went with fifth axis. Um, a couple things that I guess when all this started, it, it really made me think about like supporting American companies more, you know, because I was thinking of other brands and stuff. But uh, Fix Access, I really do like what they make. Um, the prices are all pretty comparable. And I just like this, the ease of uh, setup and use for, for their, their products and stuff. I mean, if you boil it down, I think they all kind of are the same in principle. So um, I just like the way that, you know, they made their stuff. So we bought everything fifth axis. We got the rock lock base. We got a tombstone um, and we bought like four vase, uh, four vices, different sizes and stuff to put on the tombstone. Um, and then I also remember that the side of the, uh, the, the, the platter, when it rotates on the B90, you actually have a flat space where you can mount another vice. And I was actually thinking about either milling or putting another rock lock set in there. So if I needed to, I could just, you know, put another vice on there, take it off. So basically we can do a lot of stuff on that as well. And if I want to get even more creative, I could actually just get like a, a one inch piece of aluminum plate or something like 12 by 12. And I can uh, t uh, drill and tap four holes for the rock lock setup, like the pull studs. And I could use it as a uh, removable pallet system if we needed to do any plate work or something. You have enough uh, Z height in that position? Yeah, like we won't be able to do anything super tall. I mean, it, from the bottom of the platter to the top, I think it's like 20 inches. So when it rotates, let's say we have like 10, like we're not cutting anything that tall. Like it, it, it should be fine. But that allows, at least it allows me to give a couple options, you know, like if we need to do some plate work where it's a little bit wider, uh, we can at least have a threaded table that we can just put on and take off really quickly. So, um, yeah, and then I ended up going with Mari Tool tool holders, and uh, we were buying all our end mills from Helical, uh, majority of them at least. So you know, I I wanted to just do it right, so I went for the companies that I felt like were well known and made good products and stuff that I've researched. So we'll see how are it goes. Are the products mostly uh, aluminum over there, or what do you guys do a good mix? So of I, I would say it's like seventy five percent aluminum. And then the rest of the prototyping stuff will be uh, tool steels, stainless steels, titanium. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's basically it. Just getting everything dialed in. And, um, you know, one of the things I thought you could buy tools from Helical Direct, but it, they're kind of the same deal as Harvey. You can add it to the cart, but you can't purchase it. And at least in the Helical, you can actually uh, select a distributor that you want to use and you can send your cart to that distributor. So I'm assuming they send like a quote list or your cart to them and they'll get back to you to, to buy and stuff. But um, yeah, really not happy with that. I, I really just want to purchase the thing and kind of not have to deal with somebody, but you know, cause this is just the way that they run things. So um, yeah, I was, I was actually dealing with that this week. I had to get a couple of Harvey tools in a hurry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I so. went on their site and I'm like, nothing's in stock. Like I, everything that I wanted on their site was not in stock, not in stock. So they're just going to ship from, you know, helical anyways. So I, I don't know. It's just like a really frustrating thing, but well, whatever. I'm sure, I'm sure things will change eventually, but, um, 
yeah, so that we have coolant. We ended up going with QualiChem 250C. Um, and then what else? I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, we got everything else ready. Um, I have all, I've been programming a lot for the things that we want to make. Um, we'll be making some wheel face rims first. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Um, for motorcycles? Yeah, for the motorcycle. Okay. One, one of their scooter lines has like a uh, simple four bolt pattern wheel face. You just kind of, it's just like a face to make it look cool kind of thing. It's 12 inches in diameter. So uh, what I'm going to do is start with uh, on the rock lock a vice with a setup for it. And then I'm going to translate that vice onto the tombstone and then re basically copy it three more times so it goes around. And then we should have a kind of a production setup for them to do. Our, our tombstone is only three. So. Yeah. Oh, uh, three-sided? We got the three-sided one because I wanted more access on the corners and stuff, yeah. Because we're not, like, we're not in that production where we're, we need the speed or, like, he doesn't need to be away for, like, an hour. It's, like, there's a lot of flexibility. We don't need to be that fast. So I went for the more future-proof. I, I decided on the three so that if I needed to get in, on the side or something, I could. But um, we don't need to shave off, like, 10 minutes or something like that to for production purposes. Yeah. So. I mean, this is, I'm assuming this new machine is going to be like a big increase in, in output and capability for them compared to what they had. Right. Oh yeah. Dude, that arrow took forever to get ready. And like, yeah, man, when it was, I was trying to make those, uh, intake, um, sensor mounts and stuff. It, it took a long time to just get everything dialed in and, and stuff. So th this will be light years ahead of that. Awesome. So yeah, that's basically it. Oh, I was say keep an eye on uh, Jay Pearson, Pearson Workholding. You know, now that he has his UMC 500, he's working on products, uh, workholding products and uh, automation stuff too. But um, kind of looking forward to seeing what he comes up with. I like his approach. Like he uses it, he builds what he wants, and like I mean, what works for him, and then kind of to get his product inspiration. I think. So I'm, I was listening to a podcast recently with him talking about the life with the UMC. Sounds sounds exciting. Yeah, I watched this video with Mark Terryberry where they talk about, um, I think he wants to run an airline underneath the, the platter where there's a hole. And Haas had mentioned that uh, it's not going to be, you know, copacetic with the, yeah, wait till your warranty is over until you do it. So, um, yeah, I, I actually asked him about that. And Jay said that they're, whatever they make will be compatible with like the fifth axis or whatever you end up using and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see what he comes up with because uh, it'll be cool. Yeah, absolutely. Did you go with... Uh any pneumatic clamping or is it all manual at this point right now it's all manual um yeah I, I it's i thought about it but i don't think it's necessary right now but we'll see i i figure we'll just start here first because there was so much to think about and kind of process i figured let's just get what we know what we're familiar with get the machine running uh it's very easy to just you know add to cart later if we really need it but at least we'll have everything we need to just get the get the green light going yeah i didn't know if you guys like if they were using or going to be using automation or just they'll have an operator there kind of to change out stuff there is an operator there i'm the one that wants to push for automation um and i have ideas of how we can do that uh with like a six axis robot arm but um this is going to be a long-term project for me so uh we'll, we'll see how that goes for right now there will, there will be just a guy loading and stuff and um you know Whoever's nearby the machine can load it and start it. Yeah. Is this your first uh, NGC control? Um, no, I think I'm not sure if the Haas's I use before or NGC. I don't remember. But uh, if if Saunders UMC is an NGC and I I used his when I flew over there for the class, uh, it didn't it didn't seem any different. I mean, everything looked pretty much the same in the same place. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot you you did that class. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why I flew out there, because I wanted to just touch the UMC and just get a feel, and it, it felt exactly very comfortable. I, I, I knew where everything was, and this is, okay, this is familiar to me. I, I, can, I can run this as soon as it lands, so. Speaking um, of uh, Saunders, do you see he's got, he's got some uh, big machines coming in? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. He got, like, two more, right, I think? Two, uh, yeah, VM6SS. So he can make uh, larger fixture plates. So that's kind of neat. He had a, I think he posted a Instagram picture of him enlarging the door so they'd fit into the, <laughs> <laughs> so he could get him through the, through the shop. 
Yeah, dude, we have a VM6 at work. That that's a big machine. Yeah, and he's getting two. <laughs> and I mean, you've been—we've both been in the shop. It's like—I mean, he does have a lot of room, but after that, it's going to be a lot less <laughs> room. But, but, uh, yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Haas is everywhere, man. <laughs> yeah, you know what was crazy is uh, I felt uh, right when we were about to sign on the UMC, the Herco guy just would not stop calling me like he was super persistent and he he basically i don't know if we talked about this but he was like throwing these deals that were genuinely just hard to resist like there was a point in time when i almost called the Haas guy and said hey can you hold up on this because he was willing to offer me uh a, a, a well in my view a semi better machine than you than umc 500 similar but i think just slightly better um and on top of that he was going to give us a live tool lathe for free for six months to use. Uh, as long as we provided, we gave feedback and stuff. But I mean, besides that, there was like, he was throwing in tooling packages of like a bunch of money and he just kept throwing stuff. Every time I said no, he just kept like, and I told him, look, it's not that I don't think you guys have good machines. Cause I know you do from, from what I've heard from other people who've owned it. It's just that the host is something that I know and I need to be able to teach people who don't know. And it'd be easier for me to get them going than me trying to learn a new, you know, controller, a new machine, and then trying to translate that to them. I'm much more comfortable on the Haas, and because of that, that's why we did that. But Herco is definitely a, mach a machine company that I'm interested in, so uh, I still keep in contact with him, and I'm hoping to uh, maybe get a shop tour or something, because he, he said he'd be cool with that to bring me in and, and see how they do things and whatnot, so... I'm excited to see maybe Herco could be the next machine or something. I don't know, but I've heard a lot of good things. I haven't heard anything bad. I don't know if you guys have heard anything about Herco. Um, good. Yeah, not bad. Uh, just curious, what we're which uh, Herco five axis was it like the the BMX? Is it forty two? I think it's her kind of. It's like the was was it like a VMI or something? I I'm not good with their. They have some that like the. You know, the spindle articulates and they have some that are more traditional okay not that one okay yeah. it's gotcha. it's like a i think it's the vc series okay i could bc 500 yeah okay. the 500 i i think yeah it's kind of similar to the to umc yeah do you know if they offer any sort of like training or just any way to see how the control works because i know Haas does a lot of workshops i'm curious if like herco offers anything worth like you might get to see how to run a machine or just some of the basics of their controller and if that would would have given you a slightly better warm fuzzy feeling about them yeah no they, he he definitely offered i mean he offered to come over and to my house and like sit down with me and show me and i was like you know i i, I was really tempted and if i if i had more time if i had another week or two if i wasn't so busy like all the then i probably would have taken the offer but i, I just at that point, it's like this thing's, we need this machine here now. I need to be able to, to just basically like once that tech comes in on Wednesday, I don't even need the training. I can run the machine myself, like, cause I'm that familiar and comfortable with it, but I wouldn't be able to do that with the Herco, right? It would, I would have to maybe take a little bit of time and not saying that I'm not willing to, it's just like, I, I need to make sure this thing is running like ASAP. Like I'm not going to wait a few weeks or whatever. Like it's basically coming in hot and on Saturday we'll be making parts, you know? So I because I couldn't do that with the Herco, that's the only reason why. But I'm super interested in it, so I'm hoping um, he's offered to let me in to see the shop and check out the machines. I can make parts if I need to. Like we can, I can bring in a part. We can program and stuff. Uh, they're throwing everything they they had at me to try to sweeten the deal and stuff. So uh, I really appreciate it. I'm not I'm not trying to say it as if it was a bad thing. Like I just didn't have the time to. I made the choice to go with the Haas because of familiarity. Um, but that was it. But I think in the future. You know, I might, I definitely would consider them. Yeah, Herco's on your radar now, so that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they're nearby too. They're like down the street from the shop. Actually, they have a showcase center or something in Irwindale. Did uh, when did you say the tech was coming by to set up? So uh, he's coming on Wednesday, and then the training is coming on Friday. Yeah, that wait's horrible, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only like a week, but it seems like it's the longest week. I mean, for me, like when I walked into that shop and I looked at the machine not powered up, it was pretty depressing. I d almost wish I didn't go to check it out. I can only imagine my friend who sees it every day, how he must feel. It's just like you want that thing running already, right? So um, I think after Wednesday, it'll it'll be a little bit better. How about you, Winston? What you been up, up to? Yeah, what do you got going on? Unfortunately, all I've been doing is 3D printing things. 
Um, so at work, like we're working on a couple new accessories. Uh, Luke comes up with de- designs and he, he sends them to me. He's like, hey, try this out. And uh, um, between that and preparing for live streams, all I have time to do is is like load up Kira, like get the part ready, hit print, go, d- go upstairs, go do some editing, go do some planning, come downstairs, check on the print. Um, I think last week, I don't think I machined anything of value and i printed like a half a dozen parts so i don't know uh i'm i'm in a little bit of a, a productivity rut right now um but hopefully hopefully i can make some chips this week fingers crossed um but i wanted to circle back um to the the whole fixturing and machines thing did either of you um see that uh saunders dropped a shape oko fixture plate I did. Oh, yeah, I did. It, it looked amazing. So many quarter 20 holes. I kind of <laughs> want one. <laughs> yeah, that, that thing is awesome. I remember when we had our Shape Oko, that was the thing I wanted. You know, We ended up making our own, but that would have been nice to just be able to buy you know, a plate that was done already. Yeah, I have the, uh, the carbide aluminum plate, and it's also, that's a, that's a thing of beauty also. Um, I think it's M6 holes on that, though. Yes, uh, to, to my... Uh dismay but uh, <laughs> and it also it doesn't cover as many uh like as much square footage i think saunders just loaded it up with like 400 plus holes which it's incredible that would be my main complaint about that you know it's basically the grid pattern just covers the machinable area but a lot of times your work holding is going to be outside that area right to maximize your yeah, size of your stock a- part that's like 16 inches wide that means your clamps are gonna have to be outside of that area yeah and there's lots of space on the on the s3 at least to you know to clamp from outside but um yeah definitely with the uh, saunders plate you can do that and i think it's compatible with his i can't remember what he calls he has two different mod vice designs i think the one that takes the half 13 the big one then i don't know what he calls the smaller line but the he's just it's just a quarter inch like he just yeah yep and i think they have I think they have dual station and soft jaws in that configuration now, which is pretty cool. So I'm still, uh, Modvice is on my list of, uh, it's on my R&D list right now to figure out uh, if that has a, a role to play on the Neo, because it's so low profile, I love it. Um, especially once I, you know, I saw it when I was in the shop, got a chance to really get an idea how big it is. Oh yeah, I just, I watched the video on their Gen 2 and it, it's a very nifty design that they got going on. So. I, I probably, I wanted to get one or two, but I need to make a threaded table plate first uh, for the for the rock lock base. So once I do, I'll be able to put that on there and, uh, you know, for first stops and stuff. It'll be kind of cool. Are you talking about the tombstone or? No, I, I was actually going to make a threaded plate, but on the bottom of the plate have the pull studs that go into the rock lock base. So I could put it into, I could basically put the threaded table into the rock lock, tighten it, and then I can mount things on top to do plate work. So I would put the, I would put the mod vise on top there or whatever. I could put dowel pins and fixture clamps and things on that. If I need to do like op one for locating holes and then we would take that, we could take that thread table off and then I could put the tombstone on or I could put the vise in and then we could locate for second op and stuff. Winston, it looks like uh, I saw you doing a lot of uh, PCB stuff. What's going on there? I did, and I actually, I, I take back what I said earlier. I did machine one thing, which was a circuit board, um, but it was super simple. It was like 20 minutes long. Um, so I've had a the skeletonized shape Oko that I have, um, which I call Sam, has, uh, it's sort of been my project machine. It's just a way to play around with uh, different permutations, different setups, um, and also to just sort of bling out a little bit, um, because Luke gets all the fun over in the UK. Like he gets to make new machines, he tries new things, he buys spindles whenever he feels like it. Um, I don't have a lot of leeway in terms of customizing my machine, so what I wanted to do was uh, steal something from Daytron's playbook. So unlike their M8 Cube, they have a gantry system with like a indicator light that's built into the gantry that uh, changes depending on the machine status. Um, I figured I could recreate that on the Shape Oko. Um, So if you pull the PWM signal uh, that 
would normally control a spindle if you have a VFD. Uh, you can saturate that and use that to determine whether or not uh, the green light should be on. Um, blue is just a regular normal status indicator and then um, I tapped into the limit switch um, circuitry so I could also pull when limit switches or probes are triggered so I can actually flash red on the machine um, when those are triggered. So I've I've got everything except I think you mentioned that they have a yellow light for a manual jogging mode um, but there's no way to pull that status from Gerbil. So uh, for any other automated use case though, um, my Shapeoko now will illuminate a different color depending on the status. Yeah, uh, I mean that yellow was... state doesn't even, it wouldn't be relevant for Shapeoko because it's basically when you have the safety switch kind of in, there's a position you can put the, the machine in to use the, the pendant to move around while the door is open and the safety interlock is up everything just moves very slowly and you gotta like hold little dead man switch so other than that yeah you don't have to I, worry about i could probably actually do that um the carbide motion does support uh like an xbox controller or something so i could have my controller on like a little hook or just hanging next to the machine and if i remove that it would change the status color but i i don't think that's uh that's maybe going a little <laughs> overboard yeah, but it looks cool. So, I mean, I like on the Daytron machine, on the big, on the cubes, they have, uh, it's almost like uh, you see some of those, like, city bridges that have the architectural LED colors all across the bridge. That's how they have it on the gantry, right? The whole gantry kind of lights up to, and that act, that's your status color. It looks really cool when it's machining. So, I think that's going to look great on the, on this. Yeah, it's Skeloto. a little bit harsh, though, the Skeloco, yeah. It's Skeloco. a little harsh because... Um, it's just uh, clear anodized aluminum with lights built in. You don't have direct line of sight to them, but um, the LED strip does kind of reflect off all the hard edges in there. So it's not like, it, I don't know how it looks in person, but on camera, it, it looks really soft and uniform on the Daytrons, oh, okay. which is yeah. kind of nice. Well, maybe add a diffuser, that'd probably help. I could, um, but then that's just, it's putting more stuff in that gantry, which it's getting a little yeah. cluttered. Yeah. <laughs> So you, I think you built this machine like a year or two late. It would have been great to take to uh, Maker Faire. It would have been super cool. Um, but it's just at this point, um, it's a little bit of a, a Franken machine. Uh, I've got the one of the early prototypes of the Z Plus carriage on it. So it's got a different powder coating on it. It doesn't quite match up with the other parts. Um, it's got a, a pre-Carbide 3D branded uh, proximity switch. Uh, it's missing some hardware. Um, I'm hoping at some point to get it updated to full uh, proximity switches just because uh, uh, with how much I transport it I, I'm afraid of that gantry rolling and just crushing one of the uh, mechanical switches um, and then at some point I want to uh, redo the wasteboard um, and just strip out the MDF because if, if I actually travel with this machine you're going to be lifting it up, you're going to put it, be putting it in your car on uneven surfaces. You want that base frame to be as absolutely rigid as possible. Because um, any flexure is going to throw off your, your tramming, the squareness of the machine. So I really want to sort of beef up that portion of it. Um, but at the same time, anything I add to the machine is kind of going to make it heavier, which is the opposite of what I want to do. So I'm not sure. I'm really conflicted about this machine. Um, but... For now, I'm just sort of enjoying it. It's sort of my uh, little art project, um, and it uh, was it was actually kind of therapeutic to do a little circuit work because uh, way back in my undergrad, I took like a digital circuits course, and some of those concepts like I, I brought back, um, and that's I'm pretty comfortable with it. Um, the only thing I can't do is like actually design circuits um, on a computer. Uh, otherwise, um, in hindsight, I probably should have taken like the, the four or five hours I spent soldering to just um, learn how to make a, a SMD PCB. I saw some like uh, 74 series and stuff like that on there. That's, yeah, I used to play um, around with that all and the time. Four and uh, inverts. Is this something that you've done before? Like, or this is the first attempt at, you know, making your own PCB and stuff? I have made 
some basic circuits before. Um, so I think there's two that I still have in my garage on the breadboard, which I never disassembled. Um, I made a really simple stepper motor driver um, back in my undergrad to do um, to make sort of a really simple one-axis uh, motion control slider. Uh, so I just took a L298N or something stepper driver with like no like just full steps, no half stepping, no micro stepping. Um, to just increment my camera along a, a lead screw driven slider. Um, and then I also made a simple optocoupler design, um, basically a relay just using light so there's no electrical continuity between the um, Arduino side and the camera side, uh, so that like if there's any static or something on one end, you don't fry your $700 camera. Um, yeah, but... Uh, Besides that, I haven't really done much circuit design. It's really, I can look at the schematics for uh, one or two chips, figure out what I need to do there, and uh, that, that's about the, the maximum complexity of the circuit I can design, just around a fixed number of inputs and outputs. Um, in hindsight, I probably could have just used an Arduino, but I wanted something like with a super minimal form factor, and that was also just bulletproof. Um, because these, like the 74 series ICs, as soon as you turn them on within like a quarter of a second, like all the logic's straightened out, the right colors illuminated, there's no boot up, there's no code, there's no memory to be corrupted. It just works. Um, so that's kind of my, um, it's, it's sort of a safe fallback for me. Uh, I don't need to learn to code or like learn how to use a Raspberry Pi. Um, I can just sort of grind it out and I know that eventually... I'll get the, the logic lined up in this rudimentary circuit to do what I want. Isn't there something in Fusion, or has that not been released yet to design PCB stuff? I thought we talked about this in, in Academy. Yeah, Eagle, um, which is a very popular uh, electronic design software, is Autodesk bought them a few years ago and uh, slowly been, I don't know if merging is the right word, because Eagle's still a standalone product that you can as far as I know, you can license from Autodesk, but they're bringing that functionality into um, Fusion. So it's going to, you know, they're trying to they're trying to merge the ECAD and MCAD. Uh, so you can, you know, if you think of like, I think Fusion, like the driver behind how it works is really end-to-end -end product development, right? So you can do everything, con conceptual work and T-splines. Now, you know, I did, they're just kind of picking up more and more of that value chain to getting a product out the door, mechanical, enclosure, PCB, everything. Um, and, you know, of course, all the CAM stuff and all the different processes, manufacturing processes they can drive out of the manufacturing module. So, yeah, that was a kind of a big, I guess, gap, right? There's a whole different world out there doing, or a whole different software world for electronic PCB design and circuit design. Hmm, okay. That's very interesting. It's something I've been wanting to check out when it comes out. Yeah, I just, I really need, like, just a, someone to point me to a good tutorial to get started, because I really regret not using that. Um, the layout that I was using for my circuit board was just basically a strip board. So you kind of have a couple rows. Uh, it's basically, if you take a breadboard and you translate it to just the, the circuit board, it's that kind of layout. Um, you just got a bunch of isolated rows, which means for every connection you make, like if I drop a I see in there, um, and I need to go to an input, like I'm bridging, I have a wire and I have to solder um, both the connection from the IC to the strip board, and then from the strip board to the wire. So I, I doubled the amount of solder joints I had to make, uh, which really slowed me down. Yeah, I, I've always, is, I wonder if there's like a good first project to get into with this. So I think... I want to say it's Spark Fun. There, there's uh, there's actually lots of good tutorials out there on Eagle. Um, more more aimed at the stand. Well, actually, Autodesk probably has some stuff out now. But the tutorials I I use years ago were all you know for the standalone product before Autodesk bought it. But probably still works exactly the same. Uh, I think I want to say Spark Fun had like the one I used to go back to all the time, just because it kind of walked you through a, a fairly simple project. Um, from end to end, and uh, I can, that was useful for me when I 
was generating a bunch of boards a few years ago. So yeah, it worked good. If I can find it, I'll put the link in there. Although I'm kind of hesitant to, because it, like I said, it might be out of date. But I would expect, you know, pretty soon Autodesk will be uh, doing their usual good job of getting content out or tutorial content out for the Eagle side. Okay. Yeah, I'll check it out. That's pretty cool. And then I was going to ask Winston, were there any like machining things or tips that you learned while milling the PCB board? Not specifically feeds and speeds, but just anything that you might have noticed that'd be kind of good to know for um, next time. There's nothing that I sort of didn't already know, but I uh, relearned the importance of making sure that your stock is absolutely flat, flat because yes. of how shallow you're milling these <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah even on the bantam uh, that's a challenge and it, they have probing and it's still you know mainly because the stock you know it's um well you're probably were you doing you did the fiberglass uh fr4 right fr1 i think okay yeah uh, so the fr1 is what i use since that phenolic and it's hydroscopic and it tends to warp so depending on humidity yeah that's that can be a challenge yeah the the biggest, it's not really a mistake, but the thing I learned is that if you're going to apply tape to hold your PCB in place, you have to make sure you apply it uniformly, like in the corners. So I sort of just stuck tape, like center of mass of like where I thought my circuit board was going to be cut out. Um, and the I was cutting it from one corner of a larger piece of stock. So um, that sort of, that one piece of tape was sort of like a fulcrum. Uh, one part, if it dips down the other side's going to be a little high uh, so make sure that you have enough tape spread out across um, just the entire uh, uh, copper board that you're trying to machine and also the where the board is going to be so that once you separate it from the rest of the stock it's still evenly supported and it's going to sit flat um, because I noticed like in the one corner where like um, the board was tilted down I just I had to go a couple thou deeper, and it's just because that one corner didn't have enough tape under it to uh, level everything out. Yeah, you literally have to cover the whole underside. At least I, I typically do um, when I'm doing that PCBs. It just saves a lot of headache. We're, we're working with a lot of that phenolic laminate at work, but I'm doing it on the water jet, and it's been pretty much the biggest nightmare I've ever had to experience in my life because I need to make sure that it's flat because we're doing five axis compound angle cuts and I need to be within uh, five thou. Yours is so probably Garolite, right? Glass field, the real nasty stuff. Some of it is. The other stuff uh, is, yeah, it's kind of like a, there's like, it's a light green and also like a dark brown. I, the problem is I, they don't tell me what specifically the material is on, on the order. It just says like some weird government code thing on there. So I, I don't know why they can't tell us, but whatever. But it's been a nightmare. And the other thing I noticed, if I leave it on the water jet board for like 30 minutes, it starts to like warp like crazy. Like it, because of the humidity from the water, it's been hot lately too. Um, so I have to make sure that when I put it on, I have to put it on, cut it real fast and then take it off immediately and put it on our, uh, like a granite top and stuff and it'll, it'll dry out and then kind of flex back down to being flat. But that, and that stuff is so hard to cut, let alone cut with like a, a water jet, like piercing laminate is like a nightmare. It's been hard to figure out recipes for it to delaminate and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I saw there was, a, I can't remember who posted it, but they were like cleaning out the uh, the big water jet tank with like uh, like the septic tanks, you know, vacuum truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've dropped like 10 Allen keys, a bunch of screwdrivers in there already. Like it's so hard to like, your hands are all wet. You're leaning over like three feet and stuff, and you're trying to like tighten, then you know, to drop things and stuff. So, I mean, the the other guy I work with, the operator, we, it's been funny because we laugh at each other every time we and we're sitting there with magnet sticks trying to fish out the stuff that we drop. So I, I'll be, it'll be fun to see when this like after a month or two has passed and we drain the tank to clean it out, what kind of treasures we find down there. Yeah, you guys are. I'm assuming running garnet in there, right? Like a yeah, abrasive. garnet uh, yeah. two two twenty abrasive, or I'm sorry, eighty grit, eighty grit abrasive. So what else has been going on with you guys? Have you been you've been doing some bunch of stuff on the Neo two, right, Eddie? Yeah. Um, so actually, most of this week um, was spent in Fusion. So I uh, I got my it looks like my first commercial job on the Neo. And uh, compliments of Adam the Machinist. Thank you, Adam. And um, he uh, referred some work to me, and actually kind of started small, and now like they've upped the order size a couple of times. 
So now it's actually several hundred pieces. <laughs> so I'm like kind of freaking out, but also very happy about that. Um, it's bread and butter kind of work for the Neo. It's aluminum two-sided work that, that uh, will work okay on the vacuum table with some nice finishing on one side, um, some kind of curved geometry that uh, the 40K spindle is going to um, kind of make quick work of. So yeah, I, uh, I spent this week kind of working on the programming and planning out the job and the tools, like, you know, I, there's a few tools, some small tools that I don't have on hand that I'm going to need for this job. And uh, they're uh, sewing machine guides for a company that won a large, large contract, uh, government contract for making face masks. So uh, I think they're making like, uh, it's in the millions. So <laughs> they're ramping up, you know, on their end uh, with, uh, I guess, sewing machines, industrial sewing machines. And uh, these guides kind of bring the fabric and the elastic together right at the point where, the, uh, where they're getting uh, sewed together. So, um, pretty complex. I mean, it's not real hard or it's not a real complex piece, but interesting geometry. So that's why hopefully I can show it. I, I need to check with the, the client, make sure that's going to be okay before I show anything. But, um, Adam ran some already. So, and posted about it. So it's probably gonna be okay. Uh, I think he, he did like the first maybe 50 for them. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, so anyway, material and all that stuff comes in next week. And then uh, I'll probably be at it for a couple of weeks, cranking those out. That's cool. Planning a, a complex job like that, how many uh, spare tools do you buy, especially for the smaller diameter stuff? So uh, I basically bought three of everything um, that I don't already have, especially the small ones. Yeah, the, the larger stuff I have, other tools, like if they fail, I can switch over. Like I have alternates, right? Uh, either a little bit longer or a slightly smaller diameter that'll work. Um, but everything that was kind of like, if this broke in mid job, am I screwed? I, I have triple redundancy on, um, yeah, the big, like this is going to be enough, probably enough, uh, machining that wear is going to potentially come into play on some of these tools. Um, so that's part of the data I'll be gathering as I do this. And it, I don't know yet if it's going to be repeat work because the, you know, it's kind of COVID related it might be one and done. Um, it kind of depends on how long these things. Uh, like the client was telling, actually Adam was telling me that, you know, even though they're just running fabric through the 6061, it actually, fabric is very abrasive and these wear out <laughs> just from the fabric rubbing, you know, the friction of the fabric going through them over time. Oh, wow. Yeah. It says they, you know, they're, it's actually a two piece part and the fabric goes through the center of it. This kind of guides it and rolls it over on its side is kind of what it looks like it's doing in that geometry. And, uh, it says like that channel becomes like super polished after, you know, many hours of running. So, um, yeah, I don't know yet, you know, if there'll be enough, uh, you know, if they, I don't know how, you know, if they'll be reordering, right. Or if they'll last long enough for this particular job that they're doing by the end of this, I'll have pretty good data on kind of the key tools that I use and how long they last in 6061. And I'll make my next tooling order, you know, kind of based on that. Yeah. So the other thing I have going on, although that's kind of on hold now, um, so I get this job knocked out. So I started working on my first uh, kind of real work holding piece for the Neo. Um, I don't know if I mentioned on the last podcast, but uh, I bought the vacuum work holding option from Dayton. So you basically get two, what I call two half plates. Um, you can fully cover the whole 20 by 16 inch table with vacuum, which is pretty amazing. Um, or, or we can just put like the front one on or the back one on and you cover half the table. I always want a vice on the table. Um, I'm using the rotary enough that I like to keep it on the table uh, as much as possible. And, um, but the one thing that I can't do is have the vacuum on when the rotary's on, cause they both kind of both plate either the front or the back plate, they both kind of overlap where the fourth axis mounting plate covers on the table. So, um, I want, uh, at least a small area of the table dedicated to vacuum so I can kind of prep stock for the vice. Like I want to, might just want to. Uh, machine out like you know uh, good edges on the on some raw stock so I can have something to probe off so that's that's kind of the gap I have right now that I'm trying to fill so I've designed a eight by eight inch vacuum table that can go on like the one unused corner when I have a vice and the, the rotary axis on there so um, hopefully I'll be building that in probably three weeks or so 
Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, that 8x8 vacuum plate would work on a Nomad, right? <laughs> it's kind of the same. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the size was kind of dictated by the amount of space that's kind of safe to put a vacuum table with the other stuff on the table. Um, I need it, you know, I don't want to interfere with the rotary. You know, I, I can still have a decent size stock on the rotary um, without kind of overlapping with the vacuum plate. But um, yeah, the other thing I was thinking, it's like, you know, Winston was talking about the, you know, having to have that PCB perfectly flat when you're machining it. So that's on the Bantam. I've always like wanted to do a vacuum table for the Bantam. I actually designed probably three of them so far. But uh, like if this works, then I may just kind of scale it down and, and make a Bantam, a version for the Bantam. It's pretty low profile. It's about half the height of the, of the Datron one. But that's one, like, one of my questions is, is that going to be enough planum volume? It should be fine. Um, but I don't know much about vacuums. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that works. Yeah, that, that'd be interesting because one of the things that I, I ran into at Saunders when Ed and I were on the Daytron, we were trying to mill this three inch by three inch kind of rectangle and it, it kept popping off uh, of the vacuum. So we had to double-sided tape that onto a larger piece of flat stock and then vacuum that on there to get it to work. We were, we were taking relatively light cuts. I think we got it down to like 10 or 15,000 radial, maybe quarter inch depth or something. But um, yeah, I kept, I kept moving the stock, you know, popping it off the vacuum. I was wondering exactly what you just said. Like when you start to scale it down, will it still be enough? Yeah, the Daytron, I guess their vacuum approach is a little different because I think the you know, they use a pretty high, high vacuum pump, pretty big pump to uh, get the vacuum in there. And they're very tolerant. Their design, I don't know if mine is yet. I'm trying to kind of emulate what I see in theirs, but um, their design is very vacuum leak tolerant. So, you know, they use that special kind of paper, porous paper material as their gasket material. And I think uh, Ed Reese at Saunders posted something last week kind of showing how even as you machine you know, as you're machining through, say, some plate stuff, um, and you start exposing some of the underlying vacuum, you know, you basically start going all the all the way through the material. It still has plenty of vacuum, like even though it's kind of leaking. Yeah, it's like it's pretty tolerant of that uh, by design. So, yeah, I don't think that's the normal. Uh, like you get that kind of work holding with the Venturi-based vacuum plates, at least um, from what I see. Yeah. Also, to note is that. Um if you scale this down for like say a nomad or a bantam the the amount of work holding force that you need is also going to be lower because those machines have lower powered spindles so you're not really going to be throwing a plate like off the machine because there's just not that much torque there that's true yeah i don't you know this is kind of my how naive i was a few years ago about vacuum um on the small machines i mean the like the pump alone is more than the, or about the same price as the Bantam machine. So it's like, I don't see that becoming a product, right? Because uh, now maybe if it works with like a um, airline Venturi, like in the smaller form factor, that that would actually be practical. But mostly... It depends. Yeah. Um, the gas pump that I have, it's a diaphragm type that I used with the Rockler vacuum pods. It's like 400 bucks and it's rated for continuous use and it goes down to about 80% vacuum. So if you don't need like full vacuum, like, uh, like full, uh, like, what is it, 15 PSI, um, then you can get away with much cheaper pumps. If you don't necessarily need kind of Datron's leaky, to or, you know, leaky vacuum tolerance, um, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's... The, uh, the the tolerance for the um, yeah, for, exposed area. Yeah, then you don't really need the high flow of their vacuum pump, which I think that's where the magic is. It's not so much, you know, even the Venturi ones can get down to very low vacuum, but I think the actual CFM is probably not, like, anywhere near what my wish pump is. Um, so, like, for a small design, maybe, you know, with a regular gasket type design, it, it would work. Yeah, I still I still want to get one at least one of my Bantams on vacuum for PCB. I think that would be awesome. If you if you get this working and make can can you make me one of those eight by eights? I'm curious if I can attach this onto the Nomad. Yeah. Yeah. My my best guess is I'll probably end up iterating to it 
through it at least three times before I get it the way I want. Um, like one of the things I'm trying to decide right now is, um, so it's a quarter table is what I would call it, right? It takes about a quarter of the, a little bit less than a quarter of the table. Um, the other, you know, I would like to have the same design, but going like covering the right half of the table. Cause then I could actually have vacuum. <clears throat> I could have the rotary axis, which takes up pretty much the full left side of the table, uh, or like 30, about 30% of the table, mostly on the left side. And, um, and the Datron plates run horizontally. So I want one that runs like along the Y axis on the right side. Uh, I wouldn't use it very often cause it's almost, you know, it's probably no quicker to put that on or no, um, than it is just to take the rotary off and put the, the standard Datron backing plates on. Um, but I don't know, I got, I might experiment with that, but I was trying to figure out like, probably the easiest thing to do would just be make two of the eight inch plates and just pair them together, like front to back. Then I could have, then it's like much quicker to take that back plate off if I need to put the vise on or something. But uh, I couldn't figure out the best way to route the vacuum because the, the Neo has like integrated vacuum ports in the table. Like there's one in the front right and one in the left uh, rear left side of the table. And the rear one is covered by the rotary axis. If you have it on there, you can't access it. So I have to pull all my vacuum from that front port. And uh, I just got, you know, I'd either have to, if I do two plates, I need to figure out some way to route the vacuum between the two reliably. So I don't know, I'll, I'm looking at it, but yeah, definitely uh, if I get this working, I will either make it for you if you want, or if you want to make it yourself, I'll just give you the Oh the yeah, file. yeah that, either one works. Yeah, that works too. Yeah, it's got some, uh, you know, the actual vacuum grid. That's where it would really help to have a, a fast spindle because it's small tools. Yeah, and it's a lot of, you know, pretty big. I mean, it's not a lot of material removed, but it's a lot of, you know, little channels. Lines. Right? Yeah, and yeah. a lot of little holes. So... <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you because I need to make some more molding for the pocket and see, are you pretty happy with your tombstone design? Like the way that you kind of had it or were the things that you, I'm happy with the new design that I haven't made yet. And you know, the one I, sh I think I showed a render of it last year. Um, like I'm calling it, it's really my V4, but it's the version two of it. Right. But I, I threw away like the second, third iteration just because they were too difficult to manufacture. But I think I have a pretty good design. That's, going to be easy to manufacture and uh, will work better, excuse me, work better than the first design I did. Um, yeah, because the first design, like the main thing I didn't realize until I actually used it is I put the the mounting screws to bolt the tombstone to the pocket and C rotary table. Uh, they're covered by the vise, the four vices when you put those on. So you can't, you have to basically pull the vices off to pull the tombstone off. Um, so I just need to clock those bolt holes like 60 to 60 degrees or 30 degrees, I think. So they're not, uh, covered by the vice so that the new design takes care of that much more convenient. And also, yeah. And also put in, uh, like some machinable pads where the vice vices sit. So you can tram it on your machine and machine those perfectly perpendicular to your Z axis. Once you get the. You know, once you get it mounted on your machine, in case there's any variation between the machines. Uh, yeah, I left a little extra material so you can you don't have to face the whole tombstone like I had on the first design. Just face the little vice pad, and you'll get you know you get perfectly flat relative to your z-axis. Mm, okay, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, so that that I'm happy to share. Um, I think what I'm going to do to make it like even more manufacturable is split the base from the body. So that's like that's the last piece. That's kind of why I haven't done anything with it yet because I, I gotta re really think about how to get those two pieces to come together accurately uh, locate them and because uh, if I can you know if I don't have to do the flange I can do it's very easy to do this to make those on the neo because um, it's, it's like 80 millimeters like to drill uh, I think if anyone's watched uh, Ed Reese make the original one you'll see like he had a big challenge getting down you have to come down the face of the tombstone really close to it to machine out the counterbore for the uh, for the mounting bolts on the flange. So oh, you know, the yeah, top yeah, of the flange, yeah. yeah. So that's even on the neo, that would be a challenge because uh, the C height and tool you know stick out. So um, the obvious thing to do is just do the flange separately, right? Make it a separate piece. Then it becomes very simple as long as you can get the two pieces to come together and be you know 
you have to make sure the tombstone parts clock correctly to the bolt pattern on the flange and can't move, right? It has to be really solid. So that's kind of where I'm at on that right now. Uh, the one piece one, if you, you know, on the Haas, you would not have any problem making that uh, as the, you know, it's the monolithic design. So uh, if you want to take a crack at it, I'm happy to share that with you. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at it. Yeah, I'm trying to, you know, I mean, all three of us have it. So if what would be better as far as work holding? Is it still the self-centering vice? Because I still have that, but I have a bunch of uh, modifications I want to make to it. Or is it something like a riser style where you can hold a piece of stock an inch or so above the the table of the, uh, you know, the, the B table, or whatever. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to make like a like a more I guess one size fits all type thing. So I don't need to think about it. I can just I know that this is going to work for a multitude of things. Like kind of cover most bases. I know it won't cover all. You might need one thing for another. But do you think the riser would be better? Just because that's all we need really, right? To raise the stock away from the table. I think the best, centered. like the most universal and useful uh, work holding on the on the pocket and C would be pretty much like what you see on a big five axis is a low profile dovetail riser. So you can get to as much of the stock, you know, as many sides and potentially even underneath a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the downs, the tricky part on that is machining the dovetail into the stock, right? So it's not, if all you have is a pocket and see, that might be a little bit difficult, at least, you know, using off the shelf. Although I've seen people doing it now. I've seen some people with the five axis uh, dovetail running on a uh, uh, pocket and see V250. So there's a really small, I can't remember, I don't know the model, but they have a really small uh, dovetail that's almost perfectly sized for, for the uh, pocket and see. I mean, it's not designed for it, but it, it's just the right size. Yeah, I, I think Fifth Axis has something small like that. Yeah, what I've when I was researching it, like most of the dovetails that you know they typically sell, like the the work holding tooling provider sells a special profile uh, tool for making the dovetail, right? And usually that tool and the amount of material removal is like way too much. It, the tool wouldn't even fit in the. UMC, I mean the, the not the UMC, the uh, BT50. Yeah, they usually like a half inch shank, you know, <laughs> and it's cutting, you know, it's cutting quite a big, that's for the bigger ones. So I don't know, you know, maybe the dovetail scales down with these, I mean, the fixture looks really small, but dovetail can't be that big in the stock. That's the dovetail thing is kind of like my, it's my second because I don't, I'm lazy and I don't want to have to put dovetails into the, uh, the stock if I don't have to. I'm still trying to think, like I don't know if you've seen like those Raptor ones where basically it's like a small flange that tapers up and then they have like some kind of uh, instead of a dovetail but make it into like a, a basically a clamp like you would basically like a vice but just a smaller version of that lower profile tapered raises it off the bottom of the table you get access to most sides and a little bit on the bottom um, in my mind if I could get that to work somehow then that'd be the best because then you can just throw blocks on there right because I'm usually cutting something that's a one inch square, two inch square, three inch square, right? It's usually something in that variation um, when you're putting stock on there. So if I can get it to work for those, I think I think that'll be okay. Better than the self-centering vise because the self-centering vise took up, I mean, it's just a lot more on the table and also clearances around it wasn't as good as something like a riser could provide. And like the tombstone, the trade-off is, you know, really the on the pocket and see anyway, you know, the tombstone is really kind of let you, the main advantage is you can do four parts at once, right? Um, but you're really can only access four sides. Does that make sense? So the left, right, and you have pretty limited clearance on one side because it gets pretty close to the uh, A-axis frame. And yeah, and very limited Z height because once you have the tombstone on there and the vise, um, your stock will actually can be pretty big. It could probably be like an inch tall, inch maybe an inch and a quarter, I think. Um, but you can't get to the, you can get to a little bit of the, of what would be like pointing down towards the B table, the bottom of the stock, uh, you know, with the tilt. But it's uh, you definitely can't get to the you know the side facing device, right, sitting against the vice body. No, I'd say it's, yeah, it's, so it has some limitations, but like for certain parts, like it's really nice because you can just set it up, 
let it run and get four parts at a time off the thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like it for if you want to do like a bunch of parts and stuff. I'm just trying to think for one-offs or something, a quick way for me to just go from, you know, CAD to parts. So did you have any input, Winston, or ideas? Uh, so I know in our Discord, I think I sent you guys a picture of that guy who had an idea for basically um, sort of like dovetail fixturing, but with uh, two pins through a piece of stock held in the ER40 collet. Um, so that is something you could do on a three axis. Um, I might actually try exploring that, but, um, I'm just concerned about the contact area and the direction of force. Um, because there is a lot of material removed and it's a very thin area that you're holding onto. Um, uh, I think I'll, maybe I'll post a picture on Instagram. Um, but the, the basic just is instead of a dovetail where you have like two, um, trapezoidal uh, interfaces it's basically just um, if you have uh, trying to I'm looking at this now yeah if you have like a sort of a t-shaped slot um, in the er40 collet side um, except instead of like uh, square ends you've got rounded ends and uh, on the your stock you machine sort of like a i-beam looking shape in the bottom um, in that gap you put uh, two dowel pins, and that will provide the vertical holding force um, of the stock. Uh, it's really hard to explain looking at it, but <laughs> no, it's... I, I, the the only thing about this is it's kind of the same thing. You you need a dovetail, right? It's just that you don't need to uh, make well, a dovetail. Well, no, you can do this with a regular uh, round cutter, and from like the stock laying flat. The problem with the dovetail is you have to hold it with the usually the long side sticking straight up in Z. And this, you could machine it flat on a three-axis machine. Which would get you that, like, you wouldn't have to um, arduously, like, uh, do the material removal um, with a, a more poorly supported piece of stock. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I just meant, like, it's still a, it's still a pre-ops prep thing you still have one extra step to add so i i grouped that in with like the dovetail like you know sections and stuff there's there's a lot of people playing around with uh work holding ideas um because i'm seeing more and more people with pocket nc's in my uh instagram feed um builds by gideon um did a version of one of the flat stock holding fixtures that i had envisioned a long time ago uh so i don't know i think we might see more creative solutions coming out in the nearish future. Yeah, I've seen. I saw some of the. I don't know if you guys remember the <laughs> the 3D printed orange risers that I did. That kind of the the stock clamps to the side. It was like my poor man's uh, Josh Hacko style five uh, axis fixture. But I've seen some other guys actually, you know, did it the right way, which is actually have the stock clamped in a frame all the way around. Um, the stock right on left right top well i think the top's open but left right and bottom uh the frame is actually part of the fixture but one one side's removable so you have to pre-drill your stock just some through holes and that looks like a pretty rigid setup for doing plate uh you know it's really good for two-sided that would normally be a two-sided job but you, uh that would be like you know i'm trying to think like josh josh does it for main plates for watches but we need to get to both sides um, it's not really for normal five axis work, but uh, looks like a really good setup for two sided plate, small plate. This is something he posted a long time ago, right? I yes, but I've, I've seen, like, I actually had someone ask me about it recently. They saw mine. Um, and I think they kind of, we talked about it via DM, and I think they took off and either built their own or found someone else who had already made one for pocket and C. And I think they're kind of working together. Uh, I saw a few posts about it and yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty promising and, and, and you could actually make, you could probably make the whole thing on the V250. So it's like nothing really challenging. Um, depends on how big your riser is. Like there might be quite a bit of machining to kind of get the curved sides, but, um, but yeah, I think the V250 could make that that fixture itself. So, 
it could not make the tomb. I don't think it could make the tombstone. So um, it would be exercise in futility. It'd take forever. But <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, it's just stuff that's been percolating in the brain for a while. Yeah, uh, I think you'll get a lot of like ideas as you start using the UMC. <laughs> like you'll want to start scaling down certain things, and it's like it's surprising how many of those ideas still work on the small machine. It's just a matter of scale. It'll be it'll be finally cool because now I get to come up with an idea and then drive down the street and then make it. Yeah. Well, so next next time we meet, you'll have a you'll have running UMC. Some good updates on that, hopefully, right? Yeah, we I already have the first week of production ready, kind of set, so it should be running for that week. And then, uh, and then I have a personal project I'd like to throw on there. I, for one, have multiple personal projects I'd like to throw on your UMC. <laughs> Any anytime, buddy. Anytime, come on down. Okay, guys. Well, I'm uh, unless you guys have anything else, I'm ready to wrap it up for the evening. Yeah, I think we're in a good place. All right, have a good one, guys. All right, good night, guys. Great talking to you, as always. Good night.